Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, we have a throwback episode. So recently I was listening to, I actually think it was short story long, so uh, shout out to Drama. But he did a throwback episode, and it was an episode that kind of got swept under the rug for me. I never had listened to it. Um, just I was busy or something happened. Regardless, I didn't hear the episode. I didn't even notice that it was uploaded, actually. Um, and it ended up being one of my favorite episodes of all time. So he apologized for doing a throwback, but he wanted to bring back an episode or something along those lines. And I absolutely loved the interview, and it was one of my favorites that he has done to date. So... Because of that, I, I have been thinking about doing a throwback episode, but we have so much content coming out that hasn't really been a good opportunity to do so. However, we are having to reschedule some of the interviews we have been doing lately, and I had a conversation recently around recovery, and it made me think of one of my favorite episodes that I have ever done on the podcast, also one of the most informative episodes by far that I've ever done, and that is with Dr. James Hoffman of Renaissance Periodization. So we have a ton of new subscribers listening constantly to this podcast, which I'm so grateful for. But because of that, and because I know how often we upload, I mean, we're dropping three episodes a week, sometimes people may miss great episodes and interviews, I wanted to bring it back into a throwback episode for you today with Dr. James Hoffman. And what you were going to listen to today is the episode we did on his book recovering from training. So this podcast actually originally aired over a hundred episodes ago, uh, back when I was only doing two weeks. So it's been a while since this podcast actually dropped, but all the information is still very relevant. It is still very informative and it's actually really, really helpful for you. So you can kind of weed through the bullshit when it comes to recovery and not buy into the hype around certain things, whether that is supplements or compression pants or ice baths. Like let's really dissect all the information and especially all the research that has come out on these modalities and create a hierarchy and decide where these fit into your plan. And that's exactly what he did with recovering from training. The You could call it the RP's recovery book, which most of us call it, but unbelievable book. I'm going to link that into the show notes. And today you'll hear an episode where we literally dig through each aspect of the book. So we go chapter by chapter, breaking down this hierarchy. So you can really get a full picture of what you need to worry about and where recovery actually starts, where it finishes and what part of recovery is actually applicable to you and your training and your dieting for your best results possible. So I'm excited to bring this episode to you because again, it is one of my favorites. It's the first time I've done a throwback episode. And if you are new to the podcast, you may have missed it the first time, which should not happen because this is such an unbelievable episode. So without any further ado, let's dive into this throwback episode with the one and only Dr. James Hoffman of Renaissance Periodization. All right, James, man, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Uh, I've been listening to a ton of podcasts that you've been on recently. I've been reading the recovery book and uh, I'm, dude, I'm excited to have you here and excited to go into this topic because like I just mentioned a second ago before we started recording, 
I don't think enough people talk about recovery and, and how important it is. And when they do talk about it, they're considering like ice baths and compression sleeves and not thinking about anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again for having me. And you're, you're right on the money, man. It, it seems that everyone always loves to run to the fun, sexy new stuff that comes out, right? And uh, that was a problem that we've been having at RP. And everyone's always like, how much time should I spend in the, spend in the sauna or doing ice bath or doing this or that? And we had found ourselves so many times going like, wait, 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 how much like sleep are you getting? Are you getting enough food? And they're like, no, I don't do any of those things. And we're like, dude, none of this other shit matters. What are you talking about? Like, if you're not getting some of this basic stuff done, why are you trying to do all this fun, crazy, sexy stuff? And I think that's kind of uh, how the fitness industry goes for a lot of things, right? New kind of fads kind of come and go. New things are more exciting, more novel, more sexy, and um, often asking people to reevaluate what they're doing in their lifestyle or when they're doing it in their training is too cumbersome. They're like, eh, I don't want to look at that. I, I'm just going to leave that to my coach or it's too much math or this or that. So we did the deep dive on the recovery stuff and, uh, Basically, we we flip flopped kind of what the trend seems to be in in uh, in going for the sexy stuff versus doing some of the basic stuff. So it was a really interesting dive for us. I love it, man. I think that's why. And a lot of my listeners, I would be surprised if anybody listening to this doesn't know who Renaissance Periodization is. But I think that's why you guys are so great at what you do is because you're bringing the science in a in a applicable way to where you're not just sugarcoating things or giving bullshit and hype. Uh, it's it's really down to earth understandable science that we can actually apply. So before we get into what we're going to talk about today, can you just kind of give us an exi- like a brief story of how you got into RP or how you started RP or how this all began for you? Yeah, thanks for the kind words. Um, I actually met Mike Isratel, who most people know, he's kind of the poster child for RP um, at East Tennessee State when we were both doing our PhD. So Mike and I actually have the same degree with the PhD in sport physiology, and we studied under very, very similar people. And we have pretty similar backgrounds. So that's where I met Mike. He had, uh, we had become really good friends at one point for about two years or so. And at one point, he said, hey, do you want to help me with my company, RP, which was just in the beginning of becoming RP for a while, it was something else. And then we kind of, they, they were rebranding into what RP is now. And uh, at first I said, no, I was, <laughs> I was actually like, no, I got too much stuff going on. Cause I was a PhD student. I was a coach trying to get all my stuff done. I was like, I don't know if I can commit to that. So I've sat on it for a few months and I kind of left the offer open. And luckily I, I made the, on the second go around, I, I took the offer and started getting with RP and I was still finishing my PhD at the time and started taking clients. And uh, then it just kind of blew up. Mike and I were, professors for a long time he was at Missouri and then I was at Temple University and eventually Mike ended up coming over to Temple University and teaching with me and um, for other reasons we ended up leaving academics and RP's just been doing so well that we started doing RP stuff full-time which has allowed us to work on like new books new templates researching new topics doing seminars which has been a blast it's been real fun actually just uh, we just got home we were in Calgary Alberta earlier this week doing a seminar and then this weekend we're doing one in in the orange county here in newport beach so it's really fun it's it's been a real blast being a part of the company man i love it it's it's really cool too because like i said before man i've been everything you're talking about right now i've been soaking up as a coach myself over the years it's really helpful to have a place like rp where i can actually get information and again apply it to my clients and use it in what we do and create content myself. Um, You guys have a little bit of everything, right? You've done a lot of work on the hypertrophy realm, the fat loss realm, nutritional stuff. What made you guys decide to go with the recovery aspect of things and create this book? 
Yeah, that's a great question. It was a lot of things. So the first thing was there was an immediate need where we were we were getting bombarded with a lot of questions from from followers and, and people who who enjoy what we put out. And they were saying, well, what do you think about all these different recovery strategies? Which one should I do? So we did get a lot of those questions. But there was kind of like a weird link missing in this kind of bigger picture of training and periodization. So I like to think of periodization as kind of an integrated process of both training, nutrition, and recovery strategies, all of which are leading to improvements in athletic performance. Whether, whether you're doing you know, physique, trying to look good naked, or doing rugby, or anything else, doesn't matter. All of those things are kind of intertwined. And so what we ended up of having a problem with was we got the nutrition stuff down really good. We got the training stuff down pretty good. But there was that missing link of recovery where we were kind of like, we got to be able to like tie all of these concepts together in like a synchronous way. And that's kind of why we decided to go for this project. And I had kind of meandered in that area a little bit. And so when Nick and Mike and everyone, and we all kind of agreed, okay, this is going to be a project we're going to work on. I ended up kind of taking the lead on a lot of it. And what we wanted to do was kind of, like you said, like kind of have a really easy to synthesize scientific approach. Sometimes I like to think at RP, we're somewhere between like nerdy lab coat guys with our pocket protectors and calculators and the guys who write for something like T Nation. We're kind of somewhere in the middle, right? Where we, we want to do like really good evidence based. We know that a lot of that stuff's not accessible for lay persons. So we're, we're kind of in that middle ground and we want to make it accessible for everybody, right? So maybe not um, like... I remember the first couple T Nation articles I read when I was like an undergrad where it was like, you're a fucking pussy brother and you just aren't doing enough. And I was just like, wow, am I really? And I was like, there's probably a little bit more to this. Maybe it could be put a little bit more eloquently. So that was our goal. And so with the recovery stuff, we were kind of like, okay, there, everyone seems to run to these crazy things, these little fads. But our hypothesis was that they were probably the least powerful things and that the other things that we think are important, like lifestyle choices and, and good training, are probably the most important. And luckily, most of that was verified when we took the delve into the research. Um, so it really helped tie a lot of things together because what we found is that they're not independent things. Recovery is not independent of training. Training is not independent of nutrition and all the way around, right? So what really, the recovery book for me was really cool. What was really cool was that we kind of able to finally synchronize all of those things into kind of like a nice approach where we can say, let's look at volume landmarks, let's look at calories, let's look at things like lifestyle and see if we can get those things online and maybe see how they might change across different aspects of your training. So that was the fun part for me. I think that was actually one of the most interesting parts of reading the book was like to see that a lot of it was placebo or just really just psychologically <laughs> relaxing and just calming down is going to help your progress more than anything, which was really surprising. That's one of the big parts of the book, right? Where it was like relaxation was probably one of the biggest confounders to everything. Because people will ask too, like, what do you think about doing kumbaya with my friends? And it's like, hmm, well, is there any like actual evidence of kumbaya doing anything? No, but does it promote things like social support and relaxation? Yeah, and those are two things that definitely work, right? So it's one of the, and like a massage is another one where a lot of people like were just living and dying by massage for the last 20, 30 years. And if you look into the more recent literature on it, it's been completely debunked and relaxation, again, being a huge confounder of it. So it was really interesting. And I think, um, again, like people run to the, the, the fun, sexy stuff, but that's usually just not a good bang for your buck. So what we wanted to do is tell like, hey, there's a few things that are really important and they're kind of, there's a spectrum of things that are less important and decreasingly important. So you might as well use your time wisely and economically. I love it. So before we get into the weeds of actual recovery, can we touch on fatigue first? And I guess like give the yeah. listeners 
what are like the signs and symptoms that they should be looking for to let them know that they actually need to start focusing on recovery? Like what is fatigue and what can we be watching out for? Yeah, so fatigue is a kind of a broad concept, doesn't really have a universal definition, but we'd like to think of fatigue uh, in two phases. One, there's acute fatigue, which is a decrease in performance right when you're exercising or in the time immediately after. And so if I was to say, hey, man, I want you to go run a 200-meter sprint after uh, doing 4 by 10 squats, you'd probably roll your eyes at me like, why would I do that? My performance is going to be down. That's just from fatigue, right, because your legs are tired from the exercise you just did. No brainer there. We also have chronic fatigue which is a summation of the acute fatigue that you get throughout the week of training because it doesn't just go away, but it also factors in emotional lifestyle stressors as well. So if you're carrying around a lot of anxiety, if really pissed off and brooding about something that got under your skin, unfortunately for us, those have psychosomatic manifestations, meaning what's going on up here in your head ends up having negative effects on the underlying physiology that influence training and recovery. And so chronic fatigue, or what we call accumulated fatigue, is kind of the accumulation of stressors, both physical and lifestyle related, uh, throughout days, weeks, and months of training that don't just kind of go away. And that's kind of the thing that we see is fatigue and essentially uh, performance decrements will linger around if you don't take steps to ameliorate them, uh, at least in, in some context. So that's kind of how we, we, we came about this, this needs analysis for why we've been studying recovery. Well, fatigue is a huge issue, and we have to make sure that our athletes are training hard at concurrently will generate high amounts of fatigue. So how do we get rid of that fatigue and continue training hard? That's the basis of it, right? So where does it come from? Well, it comes from training, right? The more volume of training you do, generally the more fatigue you get. And then within that volume of training, the higher the intensity, generally the more fatiguing it becomes. And that can uh, be manifested in a number of different ways, right? You can start to get uh, wear and tear injuries. Your performance can start to tank over time. You can start to have psychological issues where you're getting mood disturbances, sleep disturbances. Uh, you have a lack of desire to train, things like that. It can also come from like those lifestyle stressors that we mentioned, right? Like how much stuff do you have to do at work? Are you exposed to toxins? Like are you doing too much drugs, uh, like alcohol-related stuff? Uh, do you have impacts? direct contacts, collisions, things like that. There's all sorts of stuff that start to contribute to fatigue and it starts to get really crazy. So there are some important things that your coaches and athletes should look for in the discussion of fatigue. Well, the first one is performance, right? Performance is usually the number one indicator of a fatigue state and it's usually the easiest one to measure. So what does it mean to see a performance decrease? Well, basically, we can't perform uh, our normal stuff that you could do on a Tuesday or with your eyes closed. If you cannot perform the same weight or the same number of reps and sets or the same pace that you normally would do, and you really start to see it tank for more than one measurement in a row, that's usually what we're looking for in terms of performance. Because you can have a bad day, right? Has anyone ever gone to the, the gym before and just had a shit day? You unrack the bar and you're like, dude, this isn't happening, right? But then the next day you end up being okay. That's different, right? Then you just had a shit day. What we're usually looking for is a consistent pattern of diminished performance below what you normally could do without a whole crazy ton of effort. After that, so performance is definitely the big one. We can look at things like physiology, uh, like heart rate, blood cortisol level, stuff like that, but it becomes increasingly cumbersome and costly to measure some of those things. And that's when psychological measures like desire to train, feelings of anxiety, helplessness, can be increasingly useful. So what I've recommended in the book um, is to usually, if you want to have a really good indicator that your athlete or yourself is in an inappropriately fatigued state, you have to have a measurement of performance has gone down. You have to have a measurement that your physiology is kind of out of whack, like your resting heart rate seems really high. 
And you have to have a psychological or perceptive measure. Like you feel anxious or you're having mood disturbances or you just feel like your whole world is kind of collapsing around you. If you can get one, two, three lights on all those, something's probably wrong. And you might have to start thinking about taking more uh, direct fatigue management strategies. So a couple questions come up with that. What is your opinions on overtraining first? Because I think a lot of, for a while, it was like a big thing, like don't overtrain. And then for a while, it was like, it's impossible to actually overtrain. That's just a made up thing. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And then how do we control, maybe not necessarily overtraining, but maybe overreaching too frequently? I know you guys preach like MRV and things like that a little bit. So if we could give the listeners some applicable ways to manage that volume to make sure they're not fatiguing too much. Yeah, totally. So there's, yeah, like you said, there's a spectrum where um, at first people were saying like, avoid overtraining at all costs. It's the worst thing in the world. Like don't train hard. Right. And then we had the negative feedback loop where people were like, that's totally crazy. Overtraining's real or uh, overtraining's not real. It doesn't happen. It's just made up. Right. Both of those things are totally wrong. What we find is that there's kind of a spectrum and we kind of break it down into two main components and then kind of two subcomponents within those things. The first one is what we call overreaching, which is where you're basically hitting a state of fatigue and diminished performance that will start to become consistent over time. There is functional overreaching, which is when you do pre-planned hard training leading into this fatigue state, but you usually have a fatigue management strategy like a deload built in. So you're saying, I'm going to train hard as balls for this week. And I'm going to feel it. I'm going to be really wearing, I'm going to have a little wear and tear, but I know I got this deload coming and I'm going to feel better. No big deal. This is planned ahead of time, right? You also have what we call non-functional overreaching, which is essentially the same thing, but you didn't want it to happen. Where now you're in a fatigue state, your performance is going down. It was not planned. It could be a result of hard training or a crazy lifestyle. Nonetheless, you're in this state that you did not plan on being in. So now performance is going down. You're starting to have physical effects, psychological effects. No good. Those things are very, very fixable, right? And can be fixed with very, very minimal strategies. Even just eating more food can often just put you right back on the right path. Cool, right? Then we get into overtraining. Overtraining is a real thing. It's harder to achieve than most people think, but it is a serious consideration. There's kind of a, what we call like a stage one overtraining, which is where you have gone beyond non-functional overreaching. And now you are going to be experiencing some significant performance decreases. And when I say performance decreases, I mean, you can't even train at a normal overloading level anymore. You cannot even remotely compete at a competitive level. And you cannot even do remotely close to your normal overload training. You may have already been susceptible to an injury, something like that. Type 1 overtraining is reversible, meaning you're going to have to take some time off. It's not going to be as simple as taking a deload or an active rest. This might mean actually taking like months and months and months and months of very, very low volume training to get your body back to normal. Type 2 overtraining, on the other hand, is where you have – how are we on swearing on this? You we can swear? say whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> oh, perfect. So type 2 overtraining is when you've really fucked yourself, right? And now you've been just grinding, grinding, grinding. You've – now, keep in mind, this is what we, Mike and I, and I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, and I apologize, but Mike and I really try to beat this home. To really achieve type 2 overtraining, you will have known long in advance before this happens. So if you ever have somebody who's like, I don't know if I'm overtraining or not, you're not overtraining, right? This is something where the effects are transient across your life. Everything about your life sucks when you're at this point. Your work, your family, your free time, you're just, you're going to be total zombie, total fatigue, total feel like shit all the time. So there's no question that this is happening. And unfortunately, once you get into the state and you're, uh, you're what we call type two overtraining, this, some of this is non-reversible. Some of this is you've actually done permanent damage to yourself that you may never actually rebound from, which is kind of 
trippy because it's very rare in life where we say you can physically do something to yourself outside of just chopping your own limb off where you can't. And even in some cases, you can fix that. Uh, it's very rare when you can't actually bounce back from something even over the long term. So type two is when that happens. So now we get to the question of like, how important is this to consider in training? Is it something that you should be aware of every day? Ah, not really. Ideally, what we want is uh, in our plan to have periods of functional overreaching where we say, okay, training's not meant to be easy. Training's meant to be fucking hard and you've got to go in there and get work done, right? But I'm going to scale my training uh, volume and intensity so that it builds up over time. I'm never just going balls to the wall hitting the brakes, balls to the wall, hitting the brakes. I'm going to start moderately, work my way up, whether that's through volume, intensity, or both. And then I'm going to work my way up to the hardest part of my training mesocycle. And I'm going to give myself a break after that, usually in the form of a deload or active rest or several light sessions, something like that, right? Usually a deload. That's probably the best way to go about it. What we don't want to do is just train hard all the time keep training when we feel like shit and just work through it and try and do like the iron brotherhood, like shut up, squat to your puke, shit, blood kind of stuff. That's stupid. Nobody needs to do that. Um, so one of the reasons I bring that up is because there's this big um, thing right now. I don't know why it became a thing with auto regulation versus kind of what they would call periodization or what we would call pre-planned strategies. And people say you can either auto regulate or you do pre-planned. That's also dumb. You can do both of those things, right? So you should have a plan. You say, I know that this is going to be like the hardest part of my training for this mesocycle or this month. And if you need to, you can adjust that on the fly when you say, you know what, I, I bit off more than I could chew. I'm on week three, I'm on day three of this week, and I've, I'm already too far gone. There's no way I'm going to do this deadlift workout. There's no way I'm going to do this upcoming bench workout. You can do things like take a light day or move into deload on an impromptu basis. All of those things are fine. What we don't want to do find ourselves on the polar ends of the spectrum where we are training to not get hurt, training to avoid fatigue. What's the downside of that? Well, you're just never, you're never going to get better. You're not actually doing overload training, right? You don't want to be on the other side where we're going crazy, crazy, crazy hard all the time, never doing fatigue management. And then you're going to be susceptible to injury overtraining and all that stuff. So we recommend having some built-in strategies right into your training program. Know when that training is going to be really, really hard. And then don't be afraid to do some impromptu fatigue management from time to time. I actually had to do some this week. I was, uh, well, I got incepted by a Chad Wesley Smith, who's going to start playing rugby uh, for the first time. So now I have to join the rugby team, of course, because I haven't played for a while. So I started running and no surprise, uh, there's no way I can maintain the normal leg volume of training that I was doing when I had a running program. And so I had to make some adjustments on the fly. Does that mean that I'm like a pussy and I need to just give up and throw my the towel in? No, it just means you had to make some adjustments and that's no big deal. So those things feed back and feed forward into each other. You have your pre-planned strategies and then you do stuff when you need to and they both kind of affect each other in a nice way. I love it, man. That's a perfect explanation. The, the next thing that comes to mind is trying to figure out where people fall in that. And you might not even be able to answer this exactly, but you guys have put out a lot of information on, and I think, Dr. Mike Israel is the guy in the videos, but basically showing like where, how to find like your sets for growth, sets for maintenance, sets for everything mm -hmm. per muscle group on stuff, which are super helpful. Um, how do you find where your volume spectrum is personally? Like, do you see a huge variance in people or is it really more categorized by like beginner, novice, advanced, like they pretty much fit in this category or do you see a big change person to person? 
there's definitely some like population averages that we can use. And so like Mike actually put out, I think a really, really big bodybuilding guide that gave like uh, suggested MEVs, MRVs and maintenance volumes for a lot of different muscle groups. And that's a good starting point for most people. So we know that like uh, in general, we will find some of these trends, but there is a huge amount of inter individual variability. And then the funny thing is, so that means between people, right? And then the funny thing is, even within yourself, even intra individual variability, you will have a big spectrum depending on what type of training that you're doing. So you might find that your volume landmarks for um, hypertrophy are X, Y, and Z. And then when you transition to maximal strength, they are completely different, not even remotely close, seemingly just like on another planet, right? So it's important for everybody to at least trial and error these things a little bit. So a couple of things that we've seen uh, right off the bat, people who are more slow twitch or just kind of more like endurance-y in, in nature, their MRVs are really high, their MEVs are really high, their whole training spectrum is shifted upward. They just need to train a lot. Why? Because they resist the effects of fatigue really well. That's just how they're built. Whereas more um, fast twitch, more explosive people who are really big, really muscular, really powerful, their MRVs are really low, their MEVs are really low. So they can do very little training and get a lot out of it, but they crap out really fast as well. So their top end is reduced. Most people are somewhere in between, right? And that's when we use those population averages that Mike has kind of estimated. We say, okay, you know, on average for chest, you might need somewhere between 18 and 20 sets per week for it to be really, really stimulative. I just made that up, by the way. Don't quote me on that. And <laughs> Uh, you know, for maintenance volumes, maybe it's, you know, six sets of quads and this and that. Should people take the time to figure this stuff out? If you want to get the most out of your training and recovery strategies, I would say yes, it's a little bit of math, it's a little bit of trial and error. But ultimately, what this gives you is a tools set that says, this is the highest I can go in terms of training. But this is also the lowest I need to go in order to make progress, right? And in between that is like the golden zone of training. If you can identify those two things, you're freaking fantastic. I'm a big fan of the maintenance volume. And I know like, uh, people usually roll their eyes at that one. They're like, why would you why do you care about maintenance volume? It seems like it's not very sexy, right? And it's not, but it probably has the biggest applications out of maybe outside of MRV. The maintenance volume basically says, how much training do I need to do to not get worse, right to just not decondition. And that has huge implications for fatigue management doing things like deloads, active rest phases, stuff like that, or um, you know, our demographic is primarily focused on looking good naked, which is cool. I try to do that too. I'm not always successful. Um, <laughs> but even if you wanted to do like an arms focused mass phase, right? Where you say, okay, I really just wanted to work on my arms, maybe my delts, right? Well, what does that mean? Well, that means I have to find an, a, a new MRV for my arms, but I also need to bring things like my legs down to maintenance volumes. So I need to know how much or how little I need to train my legs, not get worse so that I could free up all this space for arm training. Can you, you, you can imagine, right? Like, let's say you just took squatting and deadlifting uh, uh, significantly out of your program. So you're only doing like, you know, maybe six sets of both per week. How much energy does that free up for you to train anything else? A bazillion infinity amount, right? So that's kind of why we, we wanted to put this stuff out there, especially that maintenance one. Uh, another thing is like, what if you want to go on vacation for weeks in Europe with your family or your friends, right? How much training do I need to do over those two weeks to just not get worse? Maintenance volume, right? that's really important. So all of them are useful and we're really big advocates for it. And the reason why they're useful, and this is what I always say when we give talks, is if you know uh, 
the maximum recoverable volume, right? You say, I know my upper end. If I am constantly exceeding my upper end, meaning I'm always training above my MRV, there's no fun, sexy recovery drink, no compression sleeve, no amount of heroin you can do to get through that in the long term. It's just, there's nothing. There's nothing that will fix that. You, it's the choke point, right? You have to go back and reduce your training volume. Otherwise, nothing else will work. If you are training below your minimum effective volume, MEV, you are simply not doing enough training to have recoverability even become a limiting factor. So, right, so if you're training below what the minimum you need to make progress, you just need to train more. You just need to do more training. There's, there's no recovery limitations. You just need to actually get in the gym and do more stuff. So that's a big, those, that's a big ticket item, right? So now you say, I know how, what's the minimum I need to make progress and what's the maximum I can tolerate. And there's a huge range in between there. And that's my golden zones. Can't say enough good things about that strategy. It does take time. It is very uh, numerical. And it's worth, in, it pays out huge dividends in the end, though. It's a little bit nitpick, a little bit arduous, I would say, but it's worth it. I think it's so important for coaches. And, and I'm going to link all those articles and videos you guys have done on it because it's literally like a key or like a, just a guide for while you're programming to calculate what you're giving your clients to make sure that they're doing what they need to do. Um, and I'm glad you went the maintenance volume route because that's actually what I was going to ask you next was just basically... Sweet. Yeah, like how do we make sure that we're still maintaining while we prioritize something else? So going off that, um, last question before we get into the recovery book specifically, what do you recommend for like when we go into a arm specialization phase and we know we have to bring volume down on the other stuff, how many things do we need to bring down? How many things can we keep up in those higher uh, volume points and, and kind of specialize in per phase, whether that's a four or an eight week block? Yeah, that's a great question. So just we have to keep in mind, right, that uh, training volume, it's kind of a limited resource, essentially. And that's what MRV says, you can train a lot, but there's some upper threshold that we have to be cognizant of, right? How many muscles can you really train truly up to the MRV for that particular area or system? Probably one to two, right? And it depends kind of on how large those muscles are. So for example, could you do biceps, triceps, and deltoids in the same kind of mass mesocycle? Yeah, that's pretty reasonable. Why? Well, excuse me, those muscles aren't particularly big, right? They're, uh, you know, like your delts are like the size of a finger, right? And your biceps and triceps aren't particularly big either. So they recover really fast. They can tolerate a lot of training. What about something like your glutes or your quads? That means you're going to have to be doing a lot of squats, leg presses, glute bridges, deadlifts, anything like that, right? Those are things that just wipe out the whole system in terms of fatigue, right? And everyone knows that if you've ever done a lot of squats or deadlifts before, you know you're actually not tired in your legs, but you're just tired all over for a couple of days. That's normal. So for the bigger muscle groups like pecs, back, any of the leg ones, usually I would say probably just one, but any for the smaller ones like calves, arms, tri uh, uh, deltoids, stuff like that, probably pick one to two and you're really good. More than that, and then you're starting to have more of an all, all over emphasis, which is okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And you can do an all uh, a total body mass. Just keep in mind that when you are training all of those things, uh, they eat up a lot of that MRV potential individually. And then cumulatively, you just can't train any one of those individuals all that much. So the amount that you can train it is going to be the most indicative of how much progress it can make. So what I would say is generally, the ones you pick, you're going to push as far as you can, right? The ones that you're not picking, you're going to generally move down to maintenance volume. Now, that's not always a choice. So you could, uh, in, in bodybuilding, that's an easy example, right? But what about if you're a, a field sport athlete? Can you just not do strength or not do cardio for a huge chunk of time? No, probably not. 
So what you might find yourself is kind of training one fitness component, whether it's strength or cardio or power or whatever. You might find yourself really emphasizing one, maybe taking another one down to minimum effective volumes, which is just enough to make some measurable progress, but not a ton of progress. And then you might have other ones down at maintenance volume where you're saying, you know what, this one's good, we're going to maintain. This other one just needs to kind of get a little bit better over time. And this third one needs to really see some big improvements. So it's, it's fun to play around with. I think bodybuilding is the easiest example where you can play around with the volume landmarks and say, oh, I'm just going to work on my traps or I'm just going to work on my biceps. But when you start getting into like sporting stuff, like how do you do that for hockey? Well, fuck, there's a lot of stuff that goes into hockey. It gets more complicated. So as a sport physiologist, that's fun for me. But for the layperson, that will start to become increasingly cumbersome. Absolutely. So if somebody is going into a mass phase, do you guys typically recommend specializing? Or do you think it, because I think a lot of people, in my mind, it seems like we should probably almost always specialize each phase because you're going to make more progress and then you can maintain those muscles in the next phase while you focus on something else versus having a balanced approach and just inching along month after month after month. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And what we generally find is that for beginners, so if you've been training zero to two years, it's actually probably in your best interest to just do all over emphasis because you're going to make huge gains either way. The actual, the, the amount that you would gain from specializing would be equivocal to what you did on a total body emphasis. And then you would just lose out on the other muscle groups at that point. Right. right. So for beginners, we usually say, total emphasis. As you move into intermediate, so kind of around the five years of, of doing real structured training, it's not that you can't do total emphasis. It's that the need for specialization becomes more apparent because now you have a huge work capacity, but you also are much stronger and more disruptive than you were previously. So training anything really hard tends to take a bigger toll than it did when you were a beginner. So usually we say when you're an intermediate, it's not that you can't do a total emphasis. It's just that you don't make as much progress anymore. And that if you want to make some substantial progress, you have to start thinking about specializing from time to time. Otherwise, um, certain body parts are just going to eat up. Like if you have a big fucking chest and you're an awesome bencher, well, every time you bench, it's just going to take away from some of the arm stuff or some of the leg stuff that you could have done simply because it's one of your strengths, right? Same thing if you have big old quads and you're a great squatter, that's just going to be robbing you of time that you could have been training arms or back or something else, right? And that's just as a result of you cultivating your own strengths over time. So at the intermediate stage, it's becoming more apparently necessary to specialize. And then at the advanced stage, it's almost exclusively necessary to actually make progress because they're MEVs of the advanced, the minimum effective volume is so high that there's no way that you can double, triple up anymore. It's just too much training and it's going to exceed your MRV. So for beginners, it's a great strategy. And then it kind of decreases in usefulness, uh, training for the whole body. That is, uh, it decreases in usefulness over time. I love it. That's super, super helpful. So let's, let's uh, dive into the recovery book. Cause I, I could probably ask you questions on just programming and, and hypertrophy for hours, but I Maybe do another wanna- one. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm all in for that. I definitely want to touch on recovery, though. So let's go into uh, the way I kind of want to do this is you guys broke it up, which I really enjoyed, basically almost like hierarchy by hierarchy. And you had even like little hierarchy pyramids to show like what is most important, which makes it super easy for the reader to understand and just right away get a grasp on. The first one is the primary recovery hierarchy. So can we go into that? And can you kind of explain what that is? Yeah, for sure. So it's, there's so much stuff out there. It was really difficult to try and just say like, okay, we have all these little individual things. How do we kind of categorize them or how do we rank order them? So for us, it was kind of more of a 
clumping them together into similar groups, like things that kind of try to achieve a similar outcome, but also have similar power and effect sizes, right, essentially. So with the primary recovery hierarchy, we tried to break it down into some common themes, right? And that's where we see the volume landmarks, which is basically describing like the training process, right? So ironically, you have a recovery a recovery hierarchy, and the most important thing in the recovery hierarchy is like how much training you're doing. So it's kind of a funny thing, but it ends up tying them together very well. Then we go up and we say, okay, there are some things that are incredibly powerful, and that's our passive recovery strategies. So things like basically sleep, relaxing, stress management, they all kind of have a common theme of restoring autonomic balance, reducing physical, psychological stressors, things like that. And goddamn, are they powerful and they work really, really well. So we kind of identified two big choke points right off the bat. The first choke point was the volume landmarks one. And we ended up, so we're writing the recovery book. And over the course of the, of the time that we were writing it, we ended up having so much to say about the volume landmarks that we ended up writing a separate book about the volume landmarks while we were writing the recovery book. That's how that came to be, believe it or not. So <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's the volume landmarks came out as a result of us writing the recovery book because we had so much to talk about. So then we have the second choke point, which is essentially sleep. But then the commonalities around sleep, like relaxing and stress management, ended up being very, very powerful and very, very noteworthy. And we said, you know what? You can't get around this one, right? Some of these other ones are negotiable, like nutrition, active recovery stuff. These are negotiable in terms of their power. It's hard to say one's better than the other. But sleep was like, no, no argument. The literature is consistently showing like you can't get around this one. And so then we kind of put the, the other uh, passive ones in there. And we said, you know, these are very, very similar. They operate on a very similar level. And they have very, very similar effect sizes. And then when we got to nutrition and active recovery, we had a hard time because on one hand, uh, taking deloads, active rest phases, tapering for competition. I mean, in terms of training stuff, it's hard to beat that. Those are really freaking good strategies. But then on the other hand, like if you have somebody's tired, you can just give them a bunch of ice cream and now they're back in business, right? So nutrition ends up being this massively powerful one at the same time. So from our analysis, we couldn't differentiate them in terms of one being more important than the other. So we said, you know what? Nutrition and active recovery are probably on the same scale of importance. So we put them together. And then we broke them down within each one. And the nutrition one looks an awful lot like some of the other stuff that we've done with just a few tweaks um, where we said, okay, calories is most important. Macros, particularly carbohydrates, are really important. Timing's okay. Hydration's in there. Supplements are okay. You know, things like that. But the most important one, obviously, was like, are you eating enough calories? If you're hypocaloric, you're going to be driving your athlete into the ground. If you are even hypercaloric, that could also be potentially bad in some cases. So eucaloric or slightly above eucaloric seems to be really good. And then within active recovery, we said, oh, man, there's so many places here because there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with active recovery. And um, we went back and forth on this for a long time because one of my favorite ones is the light sessions. The light sessions are very, very useful, and you can get really creative with them. And I have as a coach. But I had to uh, – I, I had to – what's it called? Uh, I had to give it up. I had to, pat, I had to say, you know what? They're just not that powerful. There are some other ones on that list, like deloading, periodization, that are just so much more powerful, meaning they're applicable to everybody and their effect size is huge. Light sessions, on the other hand, are applicable to everybody, but their effect size is just tiny. It only really addresses acute fatigue. So we did put a lot of thought into that, and that's kind of where we came up with some of the order of some of those. We said deloads, everybody benefits from it, and it has a huge impact either way, right? Periodization, very, very similar. Uh, it's done differently for different sports, but same general effect, right? It reduces fatigue in the chronic sense. 
And then we had things like active rest phases, which is really, really good when you have a lot of psychological baggage. Light sessions are my favorite one. And tapering, although it's probably the most powerful one on that list, uh, nobody ever does it. It's only important for athletes who are competing. And even within that population, it's only for the most important competitions. So it's just not that applicable, although it's incredibly powerful. So that one's on the top. And we just said, you know, you only do this one once a year at most for most and even that's not even most people, the minority of people who do it, do it maybe once a year. So it just, it's just too low in applicability. And then after that, we got above and the top, we have the kind of fun, sexy ones, which is like massage, social support, and like rest, not rest, um, ice, compression, contrast, stuff like that. And what we found is like, yeah, those things are cool. They do seem to be useful, but man, just, they just don't really do that much. They just don't have a very powerful effect. They're, they're nice in the sense that you can kind of double and triple up on them a lot of the times. And they're ones that you can add to other things. Like if you wanted to promote relaxation, you could also do the same thing by like having your athlete hang out with their friends, watch Netflix and eat a nice meal, right? So now you've got relaxation, social support, nutrition, tripled up on something. That's pretty cool. But as individual strategies, they're just not they're just not all that strong. So that's why they're at the, the lower end of the priority list on the pyramid. They're useful. They do have kind of a, selective use and can kind of help with the icing on the recovery cake. But uh, other than that, they're just not that great. So we kind of have this primary recovery pyramid, which is almost like kind of overarching everything, right? Kind of bundling it all in. And then you move into the passive recovery hierarchy. Can you kind of just to recap on some of the stuff that you already kind of alluded to, can you define passive recovery for us? And then can we go through each stage of the pyramid so people can understand what they should actually be implementing and focusing on? Sure. Yeah. So the name passive recovery kind of implies not putting energy into the strategy. It kind of happens through diffusion, right? You're not having to actively do stuff to make it happen. And so within that, we have the big four categories of sleep, which is easily the biggest choke point after the volume landmarks, relaxation, stress management, and uh having a non-training day, basically. And so sleep is definitely one that we struggle with with our clients and a lot of people that follow with us. They'll often come to you with a conundrum. They're like, hey, coach, I was thinking about trying to take more drugs. What do you think? And you're like, okay, you're already on like a shitload of gear. What do you, why do you, how much are you sleeping per night? And they're like three hours. And you're like, do both, take more drugs and get more sleep. What's wrong with you? You gotta get sleep. It's just one of those like crazy conundrums where you, you kind of like you have misappropriation of resources, right? And it's like, it's like when, um, it's kind of like hydration. Like when people are chronically dehydrated all the time and you see it, you're like, you're not really serious, right? Like all people who are truly serious about athletics know that hydration is at least semi-important and they just do it. You don't have to remind them, right? Sleep is the same thing. It's like, you don't even take your life seriously if you're only getting two or three hours of sleep. You're just a fucking mess, right? So there's no way around it. If you're not sleeping, you're going to start to see uh, huge effects of sleep deprivation. And then your accumulated fatigue is going to really start ramping up in the long term. So for, for sleep, we usually recommend, you know, you got to get somewhere between six to eight hours consistently per night for kind of the recreational athlete. And then for the more serious and competitive athlete, somewhere around eight to 10. So eight ends up being a very common number that we see. And consistency being a really big factor there, not just like, oh, I got eight hours on Monday, but then I got four or five hours on Tuesday and three hours on Wednesday. No, it's got to be eight, 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 as much as you can across the board. And that means waking up at the same time, going to bed at the same time, doing good sleep hygiene, stuff like that. Um, really, really important. And there's really just no way around it. And I wish there was sometimes, but there's not. And then we move up and we get to things like relaxation. And what I found through my research uh, and just kind of just 
pontificating on the topic was, man, relaxation ends up being very similar to the daytime, what sleep does to the nighttime. And it turns out just getting your athlete or your client in basically like a basal resting state as much as possible is probably one of the most powerful things aside from sleep that you can do for them. And actually being constantly in an elevated aroused state, both physically and psychologically, end up being massively, massively bad for you in terms of recovery, especially over the long term. And so relaxation basically just says, when you are not training, when you are not working, and when someone's not trying to kill you, I grew up in Chicago and lived in Philly for a while, so I'm used to people trying to stab me all the time. Like you say, outside of those conditions, you want to be in a relaxed state as much as you can. Now, uh, in an ideal world, you would have your athlete train in the morning, relax by the pool, eat snacks the rest of the day, do nothing, right? But that's not really possible or feasible for most people because they have jobs, they got families, they got other things going on, and that's totally normal. So we usually say, you know what, as much as you can, try to stay in a reduced state of arousal, both up top and in here, right? Just try and keep a nice calm state. Don't get overly aroused when you don't need to, and just try to relax. And if you can't do that as much as you can throughout the day, just try and get 45 minutes to an hour for yourself where you say either right after training or right before bed, I'm just going to relax, not doing anything that's going to stress me out a little bit. And then kind of tying into that is this idea of stress management. And it's kind of, they kind of seem similar, but we wanted to differentiate them a little bit where we said, okay, relaxation is kind of the practice of bringing yourself from a heightened state to a basal state, right? Stress management acknowledges that things are going to pop up throughout the day. Shit's going to happen. Somebody's going to flip you off on the way to work, right? Somebody's going to say something nasty to you. You know, people die, your cat eats your mom, whatever. Crazy stuff happens. Um, and the initial response you get from that, you largely can't control, right? And so a lot of people will focus on this idea of like controlling your emotions, you can't. You cannot control your emotions for the most part. Why? Because it's biological, right? It's chemical, right? You get a chemical response and makes you feel a certain way. You largely cannot help that. But what can you do? What can you control? Uh, your behavior is something that you can control. You can choose to take actions that will help reduce those feelings throughout the day if you choose to do so. Or you can go full on Batman and just be fucking crazy pissed off all the time and beat the shit out of people in your spare time, right? really cool from a, a hero standpoint, not cool from a recovery standpoint. So what we said is, you know, shit happens and that's okay. Shit's always going to happen. Life is a series of just unfortunate things that you have to deal with and that's part of life. So what we recommend is, you know, just take strategies to flush, put it in the toilet, put it in the garbage can. Things are going to come up. Don't let them get under your skin. Don't brood on them. Don't drive like further anxiety. You're going to be sad. You're going to be mad. That's okay. But at some point you got to let it go. You got to flush it. And if you don't let it go, unfortunately, what we start to see is like sympathetic nervous system activity goes up, cortisol uh, tends to go up, our anabolic hormones tend to go down, and it starts to have nasty physical effects down the road. So stress management, we said, you know what shit happens? Deal with it the best you can. Don't just sit there and brood on everything. And then uh, the last one on there, I think, was planned rest, which is basically just have a day off every, uh, every week. Don't just try and train six days a week or uh, seven days a week. Have a day off for yourself, not only to heal physical stressors, but to heal psychological stressors as well, right? Because uh, there's a grind associated with training. It's, it's, we all love to do it. It's fun. I love training too. But you have to kind of go through the motions. There's a little bit of anxiety that comes with that, right? Where you're like, okay, I know I have to go train today. I got to go get my shake, get my clothes, drive to the gym, do the whole process, come back, do my post-workout process. It's good to have a break from that where you just kind of can do whatever you want for one day, right? That doesn't mean you have to sit on the couch and do nothing. It just means don't have anything planned on the table. Just do what you want. 
And those are the big ones for passive, man. It's, it's hard to top some of those strategies. They go a long way. And what we mean by that is um, you can have a, a recovery strategy that in, uh, does not include things like massage. You cannot have a recovery strategy that does not include passive strategies. You will ultimately fail without them. So thinking about um, the relaxation portion of it, one thing I would want to ask is like, you know, for me, I think of like, okay, my setup, you know, I have work, I have training, I have a garage gym, so I can stay here. I have everything pretty set up, but it's so helpful. And so I have my relaxation phase is where like, you know what, I'm going to sit down and watch some Netflix and not look at my phone and just chill. But then the uh, paleo crowd, let's say, or just anybody in, in today's space will be like, well, you got to wear blue blockers, have only candles lit, and you can't watch TV because it'll stimulate cortisol and your blah, blah, blah. And now we're like, well, does that really matter? So just a quick question for you. I think I know the answer, but do you really, is that splitting hairs? Can you still quantify relaxation with having stimulants from light and electronics and stuff like that? There is some substance there, but the people that tell you that like you can't relax while watching TV, they're crazy. They're out of their mind. But what we can say is that some of that light reduction strategy uh, can be useful for maintaining a healthy circadian, which basically kind of helps regulate um, your exposure to lights during times when you would be trying to go to bed or trying to eventually wind down. So there, I used to foo-foo on the idea and then I had to reevaluate it over time over the last couple of years. And actually, there does seem to be some sub- substance. And I actually own a couple, uh, a pair of the blue light glasses. There does seem to be some substance there in maintaining your circadian rhythms and getting really good sleep, what we call sleep hygiene. Um, is, is it a make or break strategy? Is it like a must critical thing? No. And if you're watching TV during the daytime, it largely doesn't matter anyway, because you're already being bombarded with light at that point. So I would say, you know, if, if people are saying, you can't relax and by doing some of these things. They're, they're being crazy, especially if we're talking about during the daytime. But at nighttime, uh, when you are exposed to a lot of like the crazy lights from electronic devices, it's not a bad idea. The only thing is you have to, it seems like you have to do it really consistently. So if you don't, if you, it's not like you can just come on one night and then not do it for two nights and then and alternate like that. It really seems to be something like you probably have to do it all the time and do a really good job with it consistently to really start having an effect. I found for myself, when I do use it consistently, I do seem to like just really knock out really well, no sleep disturbances, sleep quality and quantity seem to be really good. But I fall off the wagon like anyone else. And when it's not when I don't do it consistently, I don't reap the, the benefits. So I think it's good, but not not a huge priority. I'm glad I asked that because I do agree. And I think it is important to consider the blue light blockers and things like that. But from an applicable standpoint and just a practical standpoint, I think it's important to remember like everything you're laying out, these passive protocols, like those are the foundations. So just relax and chill out before you worry about all the little tiny details. Yeah. And if you're worrying about that stuff, it's just raising your stress and anxiety for no reason, right? It's like, yeah. why then you're just defeating the purpose of relaxing in the first place. hundred <laughs> percent. So next we have the active recovery hierarchy. Um, so I'd love to go into that next. And I think we're kind of just chopping down the line, which is perfect. Yeah, active recovery is my favorite one to talk about as a sport physiologist because it, it's how do I reduce fatigue while I'm still training, which is kind of a weird thing to think about, right? So active recovery works on a very simple idea in that fatigue drops off uh, faster than fitness decays. And I know that's hard for people to wrap their brain around, but that is the truth. Fatigue drops off generally faster than fitness decays. So what we find with active recovery strategies is that we know the volume of training tends to be the biggest modulator of fatigue, meaning the more stuff you do, regardless of how intense it is, the more you do, the more fatigue it generates. And the less you do, 
the more fatigue drops off. So what we find is that doing things like deloads where you can take your training volumes down to incredibly low volumes, and we're talking about maintenance volumes, right, which is like probably a third of what you would do on a normal day, you can drop that training volume down abysmally low and not decondition at all, while at the same time dropping all of this crazy fatigue. Maybe you were already in a functional or non-functional overreach state. Well, guess what? You can take a deload drop that training volume. And next thing you know, midway through that deload week, you're actually okay. Why? Because the fatigue drops off and you don't get any weaker as a result. You don't lose muscle, any appreciable degree. You don't lose strength, power, stuff like that. It all just stays. So it's really, really cool. And so one of the most important ones we already talked about was deloading. We said, you know, it's hard to get around deloading. Why? Because it has acute performance benefits. It has chronic performance benefits. Anyone can do it. And the effect size is huge. Right, you can have somebody who's on the brink, and you can deload them, and they're back in business. It's that powerful. So it's really useful. Doesn't matter if you're training for sport. Doesn't matter if you're training for figure skating or bowling or physique or just to be a healthy person. Deloading works for everybody. Really powerful. Very applicable. It's something we recommend you do once every three to six uh, weeks. So usually we say once per mesocycle after a planned overreaching or the hardest phase of that training. So whenever the hardest phase is follow it up with the deload and recharge for the next round of training. Essentially, is all that means. We have other ones like the long-term mesocycle and annual volume manipulations. That's a fancy way of saying periodization. And basically what that says is, for a variety of reasons, it's probably not a good idea to train at crazy high volumes all the time. Although high volumes do usually yield good results for fitness and particularly for muscle mass, you can become desensitized to that and you can really start to get burned out over time. So what we recommend is have some slower volume training phases every now and again. For sport, that's kind of built into a good strength conditioning program where you do kind of your work capacity phase, your strength phases, your power phases. All that really does is drop the volumes. You can train different fitness characteristics. So it's kind of built into most programs. For people who are training for health and physique, you got to think about it just a little bit more because it's not built into your program. And all that means is, you know, once every two to three mesocycles, take a strength phase, take a low volume, what we call resensitization phase, where you do a whole mesocycle at your maintenance volume, which is really, really low. Take a low volume strength phase. It's going to drop a ton of fatigue. It's going to help you alleviate any lingering injuries or things like that that you've had, any psychological fatigue, and it's going to resensitize you to the training stimulus. So you'll break through a lot of your plateaus. And this is, I'm sure you've experienced this before too, right? Have you ever gone in for like two or three months and you just are blasting, blasting, blasting? And then you get to a point where you go to the gym and you just feel flat. You don't get a good pump. You don't feel like you're making progress. And you're just kind of like, I don't even know what I'm doing in here anymore. This kind of sucks, right? That's the ideal time where you're just kind of like feeling really flat and poop um, to take that low, that low volume resensitization phase. It gives you a chance to increase the intensity a little bit, take the volume down really, really low. And then when you get back to normal training, you're going to have DOMS, soreness out of this world. You'll start busting through a lot of plateaus and performance really, really good strategy. And it's really, really good for reducing fatigue on the long-term scale. After that, we looked at things like active recovery. Man, active recovery is really, really good, but we don't rely on it that much. Active recovery is kind of one that we use to prevent catastrophe. So we want to avoid, we want to be away from catastrophe pretty much as much as possible. But active recovery is one that when it's kind of creeping its ugly head, we can kind of implement. And basically active rest is a period of non-structured training where essentially you're at maintenance volume or very close to it. And we just give the autonomy back to the athlete. You say, you know what? I've been riding your shit. You seem like you're really pissed off. Like, uh, you know, you've ever had somebody who come in and they're just like, dude, if I have to do another jump rope or wall ball 
or bench press, I'm going to fucking puke and like just cry for the rest of the day. Yeah, it happens, right? So you get to that point of what we call psychological burnout. We're just like, I'm over it. Just my desire trains in the tank. I just don't want to deal with this shit anymore. Cool. As a coach, you say, we're going to do some active rest. I'm going to give you two weeks. Do what you want. Do you want to just do shrugs in front of the dumbbell rack and get in everyone's way? Fine. Do you want to do leg presses and knee extensions instead of squatting? Fine. All I ask you to do is three things. One, don't get super fat. Two, don't lose muscle. Three, don't decondition to any you know appreciable extent. That's it. Other than that, you don't give them a prescription. You just say, do what you want, homie. Come see me in three weeks. The first week, they'll just giggle and have fun the whole time. And then usually around week two or week three, they'll kind of come around. Like, you know, like when you scold your dog and then they come up to you with their head down and they're sideways and like, like, coach, I'm kind of thinking about doing training again. You're like, okay, cool. We can think about doing some hard training. Almost always. I can, uh, I can only think of one instance in my personal experience where doing the active rest phase did not result in a massive increase in desire to train. And that person was probably closer to type one over, over training at that point. But for most people, one of the profound effects of that active recovery phase is increasing that desire to train when they have no desire. So really, really powerful psychological benefit there. Light sessions, my favorite, take a normal training session, chop it by about 50%, do about half the volume that you normally did. You basically can keep working on the same skills that you do. So if you're a power lifter, you still work on your squat bench deadlift. If you're a weightlifter, you still work on your snatch and clean and jerk. If you're a rugby player, you still work on rugby. You just do half as much as you normally would do. All that does is in a very short-term sense, drops a bunch of fatigue from the day before and allows you to recharge for the next session. I used to do this all the time with my rugby girls and guys. They would have um, sevens tournaments where they would play like three or four matches in a weekend. And when Monday would roll around, they'd be beat up as fuck, right? They just totally destroyed. So on Monday's practice following a, um, a really tough tournament schedule we would do light sessions where they would come in we'd do a normal warm-up we would play um, some games some like small-sided games for a little bit work on our rugby skills no contact not super high intensity and we would instead of doing a two-hour practice we would do like a one-hour practice call it a day right they would look like shit they'd feel like shit but by the time tuesday and wednesday rolled around they'd be much much better off and if we tried to do hard sessions on that monday following the tournament Dude, it just keeps perpetuating accumulated fatigue and doesn't get anywhere. So taking that light session throughout the week can be really, really helpful at recharging your batteries and getting you back into hard training. And then after that, we had tapering. And like we said, tapering is really cool. There's actually a whole book, a textbook on tapering. It's called uh, Peaking and Tapering for Optimal Performance by Inigo Mujica. Really awesome book if you want to know the, the real details on how to do a proper taper. Man, it's powerful, but we just don't need to do it that much. So it's just a low priority. you know. So it's, um, it's one of the things like when you do it right, man, it actually can increase performance. So usually when recovery talks, we're talking about recovering lost performance. Tapering is one that actually can increase performance, which is pretty cool. Uh, and it's very unique, but we just don't do it very much. So it's just a low priority. And that's the active ones. Do you, do you find that this, is, uh, this subject of the active recovery hierarchy is more intuitive or auto-regulatory besides deloading tapering? Because obviously we kind of plan those in advance, but it seems kind of like, you know, if you're feeling this way, or you're having these symptoms, then you implement these light sessions, or then you have an active recovery day, so on and so forth. You absolutely can do that. And that's something I'm real big on. So I think you should start with a plan, right? You should have some of these things built into your program already. Does that mean if it's not part of the plan that you can't do them? No, that's when auto regulation is really, really useful. The problem with auto regulation is you need to have some very distinct cutoff points to make sure that you're not just being a wuss, right? And I mean that jokingly, but not like taking uh, light days when you don't need to. Because, you know, for the most part, uh, some people will 
grind themselves into the ground. Some people are really, really lazy. But most people, when given the chance to modulate their training, will tend to keep their training very moderate over time. So you say, hey, we have a hard day, and you let them auto-regulate, they'll back down. Or hey, we have a really easy day for you to recover, they'll ramp it up, right? So it ends up just being moderate all the time, which is okay. So with auto-regulation, we just want to have some distinct cutoff points where we say, can I measure something that shows that you are not where you are supposed to be, right? Whether that's perception measures, performance measures, physi physiology measures. I just need something to verify this, right? And the one thing that I think is often overlooked is what I like to call the coach's eye. I've had plenty of times where people would come into a weight training session or a rugby session, and you can just see that they look like shit, right? You just know it. Like they're, they're, they're trembling they're totally disinterested i had one i remember one time i had a guy this poor guy he showed up to rugby practice we were doing our normal warm-up and like i could tell he looked like shit his color was off his movement was off right and he ends up like throwing up at one point during our warm-up and i was just like okay you like this guy's having a bad day and i said you know what's going on he's just like man i don't know i'm just i feel like shit that's a perfect time to use your coach's eye, make a judgment call and just say, you know, we're going to auto-regulate. You're going to take a light session today, meaning so for this practice, you're going to leave at 50-minute mark and everyone else is going to stay. And that's not an ego check. That's not like you did anything wrong. You just, I want you to come back for Wednesday and have a good session, right? Same thing with weight training. You should have some reasonable cutoff points where you say, I can numerically uh, and qualitatively say this guy or girl is not where they're supposed to be, right? Otherwise, you're kind of just doing a crapshoot guess. So, I like both. I like pre-planned. I like auto-regulation. With auto-regulation, just make sure that you can say definitively, right? Like, okay, this is not just a shit day or this guy's not dogging it. Something's up. And now we can take some strategies to alleviate that. I think that's the thing with auto-regulation. Like, especially if you're doing it yourself, it really depends on your personality type, whether it works really well. Um, and if you can abide by like the proper ruling for it. Um, yes. Yes. I do. I do want to respect your time. Do you have enough time to go through the last two nutrition and therapeutical with me? Yeah, let's do it. Awesome, man. So let's get into nutrition hierarchy for recovery. What are the what are the bullet points on that one? So nutrition is very, very similar to some of the stuff you guys might have heard us talk about before. But ultimately, if the priority is recovery, uh, and not necessarily body composition, right? If the priority is recovery, calories are still king. And calories were king when we talk about body composition. Calories are king when we talk about recovery. If you want to make your athlete feel better in the quickest way possible, pump them full of calories immediately. It's something that works incredibly well, right? One of the worst things you can do for recovery is having your athlete in a hypocaloric state, right? Which is why we generally tell people, don't cut all the way into your powerlifting meat or into your weightlifting meat. You're going to be suffering the whole time. You're supposed to be in your peaking phases where you're supposed to have the best training of your life, not be miserable and having shit recovery, right? So calories are king. We want to make sure that generally they're eucaloric or what I jokingly call gain-taining, which is uh, slightly hypercaloric, like barely above uh, maintenance level, just a little bit of weight gain. So that's the most important thing. Macronutrients come next. We say you have to have your protein scaled to your lean body mass or body size. Carbohydrates have to be scaled to your workloads. Now, in the previous discussions on body composition, we said protein was the most important, followed by carbs, followed by fats. In the context of recovery, it's actually a little bit flip-flopped where we have carbs are first, protein is second, fats are still last. The reason being is that glycogen is the, uh, the glucose that you hold in your muscles to do hard work like exercise and regulate blood glucose uh, that comes from your liver. 
one of the things that we find is that glycogen depletion from doing hard training, hard sport, is one of the primary causes of fatigue, right? It's just substrate level fatigue, meaning you've burned up a lot of your stored endogenous energy sources. And one of the easiest ways to fix that is actually giving your athlete a high carbohydrate diet. It's one of these things that people still debate, and I'm sure you've heard this all the time. Dude, I hear it all the time, it fucking kills me. These low carb people for sport. Now, if you wanna do low carb for lifestyle, no no issues there, nothing. I got nothing to say, That's, there's nothing bad about that. Low carb for sport, We've been beating this to death since like the 1960s. We've been showing that being in a low-carb state consistently reduces performance and increases your risk of muscle loss, right? For sport, that's terrible. You give them carbohydrates, they blow back up, their performance goes back up, everything's great. So we put a big priority on carbohydrates for recovery in sport. After that, we look at things like nutrient timing. We basically ask, does when I eat food matter? The answer is, yeah, but not that much, right? So it's probably a good idea to have uh, most of your protein evenly throughout the day. It's probably a good idea to have your carbs primarily centered around your pre, intra, and post-training times. Outside of that, nothing too fancy. What about things like hydration? Well, hydration is important, and we said that earlier. But what's the deal with hydration? Why is it so low? on the priority list. Well, the thing with hydration is it's kind of a more of a checkmark item where you don't get an award for being hyperhydrated or hydrated beyond what is essentially you hydrated. Uh, it's basically just once you're dehydrated, things are bad. Once you're you hydrated, things are good. And there's no bonus points for being more, more hydrated at that point. So it's more of a kind of a, just like I said, like a checklist item thing where you just have to be hydrated. There's no uh, modulating it much after that. So it's a little bit lower on the list, and it's pretty easy to do for everybody. Then supplements and stuff like that, yeah, they're useful to such a small extent. It's not even worth talking about. So we usually say carb supplements, whey protein, casein protein, creatine monohydrate, and stimulants are the only ones we usually recommend because they're the only ones that seem to do anything to note. And then for nutrition, it's very similar to what we've done with a lot of our other stuff. Um, the only big difference being Nutrient timing can be increasingly important for athletes who train multiple times per day. So recovery can be, uh, timing can be a limiting factor for recovery and carbs are a bigger deal than for body composition. I love, I'm so glad you touched on the carbs because that drives me insane when people are, and, and I think the keto phase is, there's nothing wrong with keto, but if you're a high performing athlete or a CrossFitter or anything that's super glycolytic, it's just, it's just not smart. I don't know what, why it keeps coming back, right? It's like every five or 10 years that it, like people are like, oh, okay, we're over this now. And then it comes back like, oh, low carb, low carb, low carb. And then it kind of fades away again. And then it comes back. I don't know. It's just, we've been beating it to death decades. Yeah. It kills me. Uh, so the last one is actually my favorite, the one I'm most excited to talk about, because I think it's the one that, like we said earlier, people jump to. Um, that's therapeutic and supplemental. And I also found it really interesting because you talked about things like massage and basically debunked it. And it was kind of like a big aha moment, which leads into people, you know, with foam rolling, which is a big misconception as well. Like, so um, I'm excited to get into this one. And it's therapeutic and supplemental hierarchy. Sure. Yeah. So therapeutics, an interesting one where we kind of put uh, two main categories within that one. And we said, okay, we have things like social support, which is relying on your friends, family, loved ones, coaches. And it turns out that just knowing that somebody gives a shit about you seems to actually have a very good effect on your state of well-being, right? So it was a difficult one to kind of quantify because it's one that's um, very well accepted in psychology. It's not something very directly studied in sport and exercise, but there is something there about maintaining a really positive psychological state. And it's kind of an undeniable thing, but it was hard to actually kind of like really try and put it into numbers or put some context to it. So we left it at social support and we said, you know what, 
having people around you in your life that are invested in how well you do in sport or just your well-being in general does seem to enhance things like your mood, your affect, your psychological state, your locus of self-control, stuff like that. And that is noteworthy because there's physical effects of recovery and there are psychological effects of recovery. And as a sport physiologist, we tend to focus on the physical things, right? The things that affect the body and things that we can measure. But it is, it is noteworthy uh, things that affect the mind as well. So we said social support is probably a really good idea and it's something you might want to rely on more and more as you get more and more into your sports stuff. And then within that same category, we had what we call a compassionate touch, which is a gross sounding category. And it's a gross thing to talk about. So compassionate touch is basically um, pleasant physical interactions between two consenting individuals, right? <laughs> we have that issue with, in America right now. So yikes. Um, but basically what they have found is that there are effects of touch where if you are touched by somebody in a nice way, it does seem to have a very positive effect on your nervous system, right? We kind of just get like total system uh, lowering and generally promote a parasympathetic state, which is great. But a lot of the things associated with touch, like massage, end up being largely debunked in the literature, which is really interesting. And we still actually, I remember when the recovery book came out, I don't want to call anyone out or make them feel bad, but there's a couple of massage therapists who were like raving about the book and they were like, I'm so glad somebody's like supporting us in what we do. I was like, I don't think you actually read the massage <laughs> section of the book. It doesn't really support it, um, but that's fine. We appreciate them anyway. But yeah, so massage um, is one of those interesting ones where they've looked at biomarkers of fatigue and recovery. They've looked at um, performance of, of exercise and it does it recover from a fatigue state post-massage. And what they find is generally no, there doesn't seem to be any real physical effects of massage on recovery of performance or biomarkers. Now, there is the effect of touch, which we already mentioned does seem to have a parasympathetic net effect, um, but that is largely confounded by what we have already determined to be important, which were relaxation and social support. So what we found is like, yeah, massage feels great, and it actually feels good, and it feels great to have a rapport with someone and that is well-established enough that you can touch them and not have it be weird, right? So those two things go a long way. Is there an actual direct effect of massage on recovery? It does not seem to be, it doesn't seem to exist, um, at least in terms of physical recovery. In terms of psychological recovery, there does seem to be an effect, right? It does seem to lower anxiety, perception of fatigue, perception of pain. But that being said, you've got to be careful with that because if your athlete feels more recovered, but physically they are not more recovered, you might have a little bit of a problem there because that's a false positive, right? Where you might have somebody and they say, oh, I got my massage. Coach, I feel great. I'm going to get back out there and go to practice like I normally did. And in reality, they're still carrying around just as much baggage as they did, at least in their body, maybe not in their mind. So that could be kind of a false positive kind of thing you want to be careful of. So it's not that we hate massage and that we think it's stupid. Massage is great. It feels great. We just want to differentiate and say that the effects are primarily psychological. They make you feel good, which is great, right? Does it do anything for you physically? Probably not outside of the effect of just relaxation and, and touch, right? So not much there, uh, unfortunately. So I think a lot of people who are living and dying by a massage uh, might read that and reevaluate some of their strategies, especially if they're spending hours and hours and hours per week, lots and lots of money on these things. My former graduate advisor, um, Dr. Bill Sands, he developed the Recovery Center for the United States Olympic Training uh, Site Committees. And he found that the athletes who spent the most time in the massage room tended to be the poor performers more often than not, 
which was kind of an interesting, just correlational observation. So I would say it's probably a misallocation of time and resources if you're spending a lot of time doing it. Now, if you just want to do it to feel good, have at it. I'll do the same thing. And last is a kind of our supplemental ones, right? Which is the, the sexy ones like ice, compression, heat, stuff like that. And um, they tend to work. The cool thing about the supplemental ones is that they're not debunked. They're not shitty. They work and they actually do something. The thing that we have to consider with those is that the effect sizes are small. They are very contextual, meaning they kind of achieve specific things. And they do have a nasty habit of just shaving off a little bit of some of the adaptive potential that you get from training. So what that means is they, when you use them, they shorten the recovery timeline, which is cool. So instead of taking four days to recover, it might only take three. So that's awesome. But it also shaves off maybe a little bit of the muscle or strength that you could have gained from whatever fitness training that you were doing. So there's a trade-off there where it's interfering with some of the adaptive processes while enhancing the recovery ones. So cold seems to be really good for decreasing inflammation and pain and actually helps recover exercise performance, which is, which is awesome. <clears throat> Sorry. Heat seems to be okay. Heat does seem to have regenerative effects, but it doesn't seem to do anything for um, exercise performance, at least any real tangible degree. Contrast is kind of the best of both of those in terms of blunting inflammation and promoting tissue regeneration. Downside of that one is it's wildly impractical to try and use. Unless you have two um, uh, water immersion tubs, like two bathtubs, one's hot, one's cold, you're going to be having a person moving across. They're going to be all wet trying to go from one thing to the next thing. There's tripping hazards. I have a cat. He would almost certainly try and kill me while I was trying to go from one shower to the other shower in the house, right? No way that's going to happen. Um, so unless you're using like an ice pack, cold pack, it's really, really impractical and hard to pull off in real life. Compression is another one that's kind of useful, pretty cool. It also has kind of regenerative effects. It does help a lot with swelling and edema. And the nice thing about those is uh, you just kind of set and forget it. You just throw it on. Don't have to really think about it. Don't have to really do anything. Just kind of does its thing uh, throughout the day. It's just not very powerful. If you go through, there are hundreds of studies on compression now, which is really neat. So it's very well studied. But the effect sizes are just tiny. They're just tiny. It doesn't do anything. It's just a small, very small, dull effect over time. That being said, I do think it's useful. I use it for my elbow tendonitis, and it does seem to help me quite a bit. Uh, it's really, really good when you have people who have a lot of swelling, stuff like that. It's cool. It's just not that strong. After those, everything else is a big mystery. Those are the only ones, at least at the time of when we did our investigation, those are the only, the only ones that we thought were compelling enough to write about. Even the East Stem, we were like, eh, it's kind of 50-50. It made its way into the book, but if I'm sure if you saw it, it's kind of like, we're not really sure. It's kind of half 50-50. So the rest of them, man, it was, it's a, I'm still hard-pressed to add anything at this point that I think is really evidence-based worth people's time. The only one I might add might be the blue blocking lights, but even then it would be, it would probably be under the supplemental strategies as a very small effect. So unbelievably helpful the way you laid this all out. It's, it's nice to get you on the mic and actually hear you describe it, especially after reading the book. Um, it's almost like having, it literally is having the author <laughs> summarize it to me, which is awesome. But um, I love it because people can, the hierarchies just make it so helpful. Now people can take this and go, okay, what do I need to focus on? And instead of worrying about the compression, are you even sleeping enough first? Like go in order so you can actually get the most out of this. Um, James, thank you so much for spending the time. I would love to do this again because there's so much we could talk about. Um, I'm going to plug the hypertrophy guides because we talked about that. I'm going to plug the recovery book. Is there anything else you want to tell the listeners to go check out, how to follow you, anything like that? 
Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, Mike and I do a thing called RP Plus, where we have a huge video database of all sorts of videos and instructional stuff on everything diet, training, nutrition related. We also do a weekly webinar, and we actually have been doing it for over a year now. So we have a huge backlog of videos where every week people will submit questions to Mike and I on our forum, and then we post them up on the internet and we read them off live stream and usually do about two hours per week where we just answer Q&A as best as we can. So you can find us on RP Plus. We also have a really stupid podcast called The Sports Scientist, which is not serious in any way. So don't go there for actual information. It's just stupid stuff. And uh, yeah, the recovery book is is out there. And I actually did an audio, uh, an audio book version of it, which hopefully will be on Audible and iTunes pretty soon. Hopefully. Nice. Yeah. Perfect. Well, once again, man, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, dude. It was a blast. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation. Jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.